Good morning. Let me welcome you to your seats. Tough to get you back on Food Truck Sunday out there. We have been working through a series over the last eight weeks, today being week eight. It's been a series on mission and giving, and we have eight steps in the back. And uh, step four is connection, step five is mission, and step six is giving. In just a few weeks for Job Fair Sunday, when you show up and we talk to you about opportunities to serve here, that's step seven. So we're working right along the path of fulfillment and the things that we want to see God do and be a part of in our own lives. Today is the last installment of that particular series. And we're just calling it Get Outside of Yourself. Again, mission and giving. And today as a text, it's a text that everyone would know, I'm pretty sure, it's in the book of John. In fact, several things we'll be reading in John today, chapter 3, chapter 4. This one's not on the screens. I'm just going to take a chance you know it. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave. He gave. Loving and giving, huge connection between loving and giving. Oftentimes I stand up here as a pastor. Today I stand up here as an evangelist. That's the office that I'm standing in right now. That's the anointing that hit me sitting in that seat. I'm going to talk to you from that place. The title today is WDJD. That is not a radio station in Illinois. Everybody's familiar with WWJD. WDJD is what did Jesus do? What did Jesus actually do? I was having coffee with Rick Fowler the other day. He's very connected to Kairos and that ministry, serving the incarcerated. Spends a lot of time every week in prisons. He gave me their motto, which I thought was powerful. Pretty simple. Two words repeated. Listen, listen. Love, love. That's what we do, he says. He said, I don't even know what guys are in here for. I don't ask, because it doesn't matter. It's listen, listen. Love, love. I thought about titling the message, listen, listen, love, love. I was captured by that. I've thought about it quite a bit the last several days. As a posture, listen, listen, love, love. I'm reminded of an experience that I had in a college class that I took once. It was a cross-cultural counseling course. I happened to be on the East Coast. It was up at UMass in Boston. I was actually just picking up a class that I needed, and we were traveling, and I was there for a season, and I only took one course at the college, but it was, it was up in Boston. And we had this inventory to do. It was the kickoff of the class around cultural sensitivity and awareness and those, those kinds of things. I don't know, it was seven, eight pages, full pages. And I started answering 
what I thought about diversity, different people groups, socioeconomics, culture, page after page of questions. And I would check the box, I would check this, and did I agree yes or no, and what was my point score, you know, different things like that. Just a, a very simple, straightforward inventory to kind of bring a foundation to start the class. Clicking all the way through it. And I kept hearing this other voice. As I'm filling it out, as I'm working through, I'd answer one thing and then I'd hear something else. And I'd answer one thing, and then I'd hear this other input to me. And after about half a page, three-quarters of the first page, I paused, and I'm like, what is going on here? Like, what? I paused, and I, 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 I took account of what's happening for me right now. I realized that I was checking the boxes as a Southern Illinois country boy. That was the identity from which I was answering those questions. Just a good old boy from the country. There was another voice that kept answering something different. And I began to realize that it was the prompting of the Holy Spirit to answer a little bit different than my good old boy, Southern Illinois self. And it caught me. It surprised me. I really wasn't expecting it at all. I was a believer I was following the Lord. It wasn't like I was in some random way off place and got like, I was a pastor. But this other thing kept coming through. And so I drew a line down the page on all, the, all six or seven pages. I drew a line at the side and I listened. To, I answered both ways. Here's how I feel as a good old boy. And here's the prompting I'm getting from the Holy Spirit. It was an interesting, interesting exercise. I have come to realize of late that as much as I love this scripture, it's actually not the authority in my life. It's not. The authority in my life is Jesus. So as old school transparencies, if you put a transparency on the overhead and you might tape one to the side, flip it back and forth, there is the scripture as foundation, absolutely sure. And then I overlay Jesus to see how that actually plays out. WDJD, what did, what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do? do in situations. I don't consider myself a scholar. I consider us all theologians because we all study the scripture. But Jesus himself is the one that gave us the shot across the bow by saying, you study the scripture thinking that in the scripture you have eternal life and you missed me. That is a warning that is a shot across the bow for any of us to recognize that we can get so locked in on getting it right that we miss him. You see, I'm not trying to have a doctrine formed in me. I'm not trying to have a law formed in me. I'm not trying to have precepts or tenets formed in me. I'm trying to have, according to Galatians 4, the prayer of Paul, is that Christ is formed in me. 
Jesus is formed in me. He, the person of Christ, however that works physiologically, that he is formed in me. That other voice of what did Jesus do? I'm incredibly inspired by Jesus, frankly. This is more than a job for me. It's a life. I know that's true for so many of us here. It's our life. It's what we wake up thinking about. We wake up thinking about the Lord. It's not a sidebar that a Thursday at 2 o'clock, I've got a coffee date. It is the life. It is the breath. We just sang about it. It's the breath and life of our lungs. It gets us up. It keeps us going. That power of the Spirit, that life of Christ that we want, and we want to be formed in us and real. I'm inspired by him. And from study, from the years of searching scripture and wrestling and doing business with the tenets of this book, and then you look at how Jesus himself plays things out. There is discord. There is disconnect. The Pharisees show up with the Bible in their hand, waving it, saying, here's what we're going to do, because this is what it says. And he looks at him and he says, well, that's not exactly what I'm going to do. He got crucified for things like that. He got crucified because he put aside the Torah, and he put aside the temple, and he put aside the Sabbath. So the tension and what we have to do business with is which of those two things we are going to follow. And that is the crucible. That is the moment where we individually have to stop and say, will it be how I read the letter or will it be how I follow the spirit? And that is your crucible. John chapter 4, the words will be on the screen. When you think you preached everything you know about a story. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized his disciples, but his disciples. And when the Lord learned of this, he left Judea, went back once more to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria. Now, this is interesting. I don't know if you have an NIV study Bible. I do. There's a map on the side. Galilee is up high. It says he needs to go through Samaria. The actual town was called Sychar. And then he goes right back up to where he was. So Arnick and I are trying to get together for a, a conference. And uh, his family's taking vacation, and I'm going to be in Birmingham. And I said, buddy, he says, I don't think I can make it. I said, Birmingham's right on the way to where you're going on vacation. Like it's right on the way. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden we had possibilities. Right? It's not, we're going to Denver, and Birmingham's right on the way, which is almost what this is. If I'm in Chicago, Jesus is in Chicago, and he's going to Kansas City, going to Kansas City, and he says, I've got to run through Nashville. Just got to make a quick run through Nashville. That's the geography of what is going on right here when he says, I have to go through Samaria. It wasn't on the way. It wasn't like, in order to get to Effingham, I have to drive through Marshall. 
The imperative was different. The imperative was, it's not on the way, and I have to go there. And we're going to see why. He came to this town in Samaria called Sychar. Now, Sychar is a nickname for the city. The actual town is called Shechem. But Sychar is the nickname. They nicknamed it. The Jews nicknamed it because Sychar means liar or drunk. That's what it means. They nicknamed the city as the city of the liars and the drunks. They're going to Sychar. The actual name is Shechem, and it is ancient. Ancient as a city. But tagged with this moniker of that's the place where the Samaritans live, who are the liars and the drunks. So he comes near a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, he sat down by the well, and it's about the sixth hour of the day. So it's noon. Sixth hour means noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus says to her, will you give me a drink? Now his disciples had already gone to town, it says it right here, already gone to town to buy food. So he's on the outskirts of town, near the well, city of Sychar. He's sitting there. A woman comes up. He asks her for a drink of water. For us, that's not that big of a deal. That's not such a big deal. I mean, even if we walk in someone and someone's standing outside of Casey's and says, hey, man, can you owe me a buck for a drink? Would you buy me a soda? Can I have a water? Like, it's, you know, it doesn't happen every day to us, but it's not that big a deal. This is a big deal. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan woman. She totally calls it out. How can you ask me for a drink? Is it up there? Yeah. How can you ask me for a drink? She gives us the first hint of the tension that we're about to walk into. The tension that it appears Jesus set up. I have to go through Sychar. I have to go through liar drunk place. He had to go there, and he's waiting, and he engages this woman. She never would have spoken to him. And then she calls it out. She says, what are you doing as a Jew asking drink of me, a Samaritan? And it goes on to say, parenthetic note, Jews do not associate with Samaritans. If you're looking at this on your Bible, you're going to see one of those little doodaddy talking bubble things. You can touch that. And depending on your translations, it's going to say they did not use Samaritan utensils. (laughs) Now, you might get ticked off at me if you have a water bottle and I just come over and drink out of it. But I doubt you're going to run around going unclean, unclean, unclean. Like, you know, like, hey, you're like a jerk. Get your own water bottle. They weren't allowed to use the utensils of a Samaritan to even drink water. They couldn't do that, much less talk to a Samaritan, much less a woman Samaritan. The deck is getting stacked here. Jesus says this. Listen to what he says. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you'd have asked him, he would have given you living water. Now, I'm not sure. I can't prove this. I don't know if anybody can prove it. But it appears to me that this is the first time Jesus told anyone about the promise of living water. Does anybody else know the situation that this woman is in? Does anybody else, anybody else read this story before? It is the first time, I think, that he gives the promise of the indwelling spirit to someone, and it's this person. That is scandalous. 
That's not okay. In that culture, not okay. He's breaking rule after rule. Sir, the woman said, you've nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Where can you get this living water? She's kind of coming back at him a little bit, right? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well, drank from it himself, as did also his sons and flocks and herds? Interesting that she draws herself into the lineage of David and rejected. Jesus answers, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. And indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman finally says, sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Now, we know that she came by herself. We also know what time of day it was. It was noon. People don't draw water at noon. Anybody know why? It's hot. And you need water for the morning. Like it was the custom and the culture for them to come early and draw water. But because, and we're going to read on, if you've already read, you know where we're going. We're going to find out that the shame that this woman, who identifies herself as a daughter of Jacob, feels is so incredible that she'd rather show up at lunch. I've often said she'd rather deal with the heat of the day than the heat of their stairs. She said, I'd love it if you could hook me up with some water that I don't have to come here. So Jesus says, here he goes, breaks it open. Go call your husband and come back. Let me just toss this out here. There's a lot of times we know exactly what's going on and don't say anything about it. If you think I don't know every single thing that's going on in this church, you need to think again. I am aware of every person that gets scheduled. I'm aware of every person that serves. I'm aware of the Bible studies that are happening. I'm aware of everything that goes on in this building. As Jesus, I address it when it's time to address it. It does not mean, do not think that I don't know. And do not think that I don't shepherd. And do not think that I don't have the heart of a pastor for this place and caring care for people because you would be wrong. He told her, get your husband and come back. She says, I have no husband. Jesus says, you're right when you say you have no husband. Fact is, huh, fact is, <laughs> well, the fact is you've had five husbands and the man that you have uh, now is not your husband. And what you've just said is quite true. You don't have a husband. You've had five. And the man you're with now is not your husband. And you know what? None of that's okay. That's not the way we live. That's not God's plan. None of that's okay. He's addressing it. He's talking to her. Making a connection now for, uh, how do we say that? Yeah, there's a connection later. You're going to see it. Sir, the woman said, I can see you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. You want to see once again. Do you see what she says? Our fathers worshipped here. This woman is not from under some rock somewhere and has no idea what's going on. She is versed in Messiah, in the courts of Israel, in the heritage of Israel. 
Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. What she is saying is, you're a son of Jacob, I'm a daughter of Jacob, but you've isolated a particular place that I can't come worship. And I want to, but I can't. Jesus declares, believe me, woman, the time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship that you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father. Not in this building. Not in the United States. Not the location where we worship. Does anybody know? What's the location of our worship? It's spirit and truth. The location of our worship is spirit and truth. God is calling us to be a community of faith that worships him in spirit and truth. Our culture, our culture as a community of faith is that we worship in spirit and in truth. They are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is a spirit. His worshipers must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. See, she knew that. She was looking for the promise of redemption just like the Jews were looking for the promise of redemption. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us and then Jesus declares, I who speak to you am he. He knew. She knew. And it appears that she converted to him. And frankly, I, whoever edited the Bible, should I make it there to speak to the editor? I have a couple of questions. Like, just insert a couple things every once in a while, and that'll clear up so many things for us. She converts to Jesus. She believes in who he is. They know the rules. They know the issues they know the cultural problems. He says, I am he. She believes in him. But what I ask myself is, what about the messiness of her life? The Bible is silent about that. What about the messiness? What happened when she went back to the city of the liars and the drunks? What happens when she goes back to Sychar? Because frankly, as a pastor, that would help me. That would help me recognize how a lot of these things actually play through. Most of us stop right there. I think it's fair to say, if the chosen stopped right there, most of us stop right there. Like, that's where the story ends. Except that's not the end of the story. In fact, everything I have read so far is simply the precursor, the setup for actually the story. And as much as I have drawn from and love the interactions of Jesus in this moment, there is more. And it's inspiring. Just then his disciples return. They're surprised to find him talking with this woman. <laughs> They're surprised, as they should be. She knew the rules. Jesus knew the rules. The disciples knew the rules. Everybody knew the rules. They were surprised. I'm grateful it says that. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking to her? Nobody asked, why are you talking to her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman goes back to town and says to the people, 
Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be Christ? Could this be the Christ? Like, I, this guy promised me stuff, told me stuff. I think this could be the guy. That's a rhetorical question. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town, made their way toward him, and meanwhile, the disciples urge him. See, there's always that extra part of the story. This is like the prodigal son. We do all the business with the prodigal son, the younger brother and all the things, and then we're like, yeah, he came home and calf and robe and ring and sing a song. The entire story is a setup for the older brother. The story is about the older brother. This is the point of the story. All that we glean from the beginning, it's right here. The misunderstandings of the disciples. They're like, Rabbi, eat something. He said, I have food to eat that you know not of. And they would do it, but I, you know, did you get DoorDash? Like, how did you get some food? What happened here? How did you... Could someone have brought him food? And listen to what he says, which is so powerful. My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. My food is to finish the work. And you're going to see the work finished in this story. This is how the work gets finished. He says, guys, I'm eating food that you don't know about. And the food that I eat is to finish his work, which is the title of the message today. What did Jesus do? What did he actually do? Don't say four months more and then the harvest. I tell you, open your eyes. Look at the fields. Can I say that to you without offending you? Open your eyes. Look at the fields. They're ripe for harvest. Even now, the reapers draw his wages, and even now, harvest crops for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may uh, be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you've not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you've reaped the benefits of their labor. Should we stop there? No, because the story's not done. Jesus is still there. What did Jesus do? What did he do? I think most of us can rattle off the conversation at the well, what happened at the well, and all the nuances of the well. Some of us know that he had this conversation about, I have meat that you know not of, but how many of us are aware of what I'm about to read? Many of the Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Sounds good. We celebrate that. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he did it. He stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. You see, Jesus didn't just deliver a message. He didn't just say, fine, Brian, I'll meet you for a coffee. They said, would you please stay with us? And he said, yes. He stayed with them, not for the afternoon. Do you know why Melinda and I have friends all around the country? Here's why. Because when we traveled like maniacs in our 30s, 40s, when we visited people, we never stayed more than three days, and sometimes we only stayed an afternoon. 
That's why we've kept all those friends for all these years. <laughs> a lot of times I'd say, hey, we're passing through Columbus. Can we grab a coffee with you? And we'd like roll in, almost keep the car running. I met people for a soda. We'll have four Cokes. And we sit and drink. I'm like, okay, guys, we got to roll. And we would meet him for that. And it was valuable and it was meaningful. Hear my heart. It was valuable and it was meaningful, those meetings with people. We did it because we loved them and we prioritized it and they were spur of the moment and said yes and we got together for those reasons and they were meaningful and they mattered and it would have been fine for him to do that here. But he did not. He did a 48-hour sleepover in the city of Scandal. He chose to sleep in this city where you're not even supposed to use the utensils. Did they fast for two days? I'm mocking it, right? No, you know he didn't. He sat with them. He slept in somebody's house. He slept somewhere. And it doesn't even matter if it was someone's house, a hotel, whatever. But he was in the city. Why? I just looked at that and I'm like, why? Why introduce all that conflict? What did Jesus do? Why introduce that? You didn't have to do that. You could say, hey, I'm just going to swing by and see you. Hey, have everybody come out here. It said the city came out, and there were other times where the whole city came out and Jesus left. The whole city came out. He could have said, hey, this will do. Guys, I'd love to stay. i got to go. But he didn't. Jesus put himself in this place of connection and intimacy, giving messages of acceptance and belonging and community in a culture that says, no way. And we got to do business with that. Because that's what Jesus does. We're like, Jesus wouldn't offend us. He told a bunch of people to drink his own blood. I, I don't think he knew what he was saying. Are you kidding me? He looked at a bunch of Jews and said, hey, and by the way, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And you know the result? Anybody? Everyone left. Everyone left. They hopped in their car, they fired them up, hit the lights, and gone. So much so that Jesus, who introduces this stuff, looks over to the disciples and looks at them, ha, ah, looks at them and says, are you going to go too? And Peter, the resonance of my heart is what Peter says. Where? Am I going to go? Where else am I going to go? You have the words of eternal life. You. Where am I going to go? <laughs> Jesus spent two days hanging out, I think it's fair to say, with the culturally marginalized. The Samaritans, that you couldn't eat with them, couldn't sit with them, couldn't talk to them. Not only did he talk to them, sit with them, engage them. He went to their city. He stayed two days, slept there, lived with them. My goodness, the misunderstandings that had to come out of that. I'd like to say I, don't, I can't understand it, but I can't. 
I'd like to say I have no idea what he's going through, but I do. I was saying this a moment ago, sitting over there. We all know that Jesus left the 90 and 9 and searched for the one. And we celebrate that he searched for the one. Do you understand he left the 99? I'm not going to ask him to pull it up for you. I'll read it to you myself. Luke 15. Listen to the context of this. Listen to the context of left the 99. And let me, let me, let me put this out there for you. He left the 99 without a shepherd. Do you understand how important it is to go get the one? Can I take a minute and accentuate how important it is to get the marginalized and get the one to the point that he would, and I'll say, abandon the 99? Listen to what it says. It says open country. Left him in open country. You know what open country means? Vulnerable. He didn't put him in pens, lock them all up, and then go after the, the lost sheep. He left him in open country, the scripture says. Luke 15, 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. Well, here you go. <laughs> That's the setup. The setup is that the tax collectors and the sinners were sitting around hearing Jesus, and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. That's the setup of his story when then Jesus tells him, he says, so suppose one of you had 100 sheep and you lose one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? Again, rhetorical question. What does this have to do with giving series? Well, it has to do with giving your time. It has to do with giving the gift of listening what is it, Rick? Listen, listen, love, love. This has to do with giving the time to listen, listen. It has to do with giving love, love. It has to do with giving presence, presence. If Jesus didn't do this stuff, It'd be harder for us than it is. Maybe it'd be easier. We'd look at him like, that ain't Jesus. He said, it was Jesus. And what I said that might have been very provocative and even offensive to you earlier, where I'm like, this is not my authority. I know the scripture. But this is not it. There is a template of what Jesus does. That's it. And... My intention is, I understand, as he did, you know, drink my blood, he can offend you. I understand that's an offensive statement to some. I get it. I'm telling you where I am. I've been, I've been in the same spot for eight years, the same place. Nothing in this old boy has changed. That is the template. What did Jesus do? And I find it full of tension, and I find it challenging but I'm drawn to who he is as this woman was drawn to who he is. And it is an expression of my story because of the life change that that connection made. You see, this old boy knew, I knew the scripture when I made a conversion. Many people in here, you didn't know that there was an Old and a New Testament when you made your conversion. People were witnessing to me about the Bible and I was recognizing that they were misquoting scriptures. I knew the scripture. It was Jesus that changed my life. That is what I believe in. 
That is the gift that we give people a connection now for a connection later. To be the ones that show up in that moment of need, and I'm here for you. Do I take a hit for being there? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. To me, that's the mission. That's what we're going to do. We're going to eat with and love with and choose to step into those spaces. What did Jesus do? For me, I understand the challenge. I really think I do. Because I've been the target of the retribution from it. (laughs) I've been the target of the frustration of it. I get it. I understand how it's hard. I understand how it's a wrestle. But I'm telling you, imploring you and encouraging you to recognize that this is the crucible of the gospel. The crucible of the gospel. It is that point somewhere out west that Josh and Mindy probably know the spot where if a raindrop falls here, it goes in the Pacific. If it falls here, it goes into the Atlantic. But it's, I'm told it's somewhere out there. That's the crucible. Will I follow what Jesus does? Will I surrender to that voice in that moment in the midst of conflict? In the midst of misunderstanding, can I do it? I have two heroes in the scripture. One is a teenage girl who, when the Lord, the angel, says, you're going to be pregnant by the Holy Ghost, she said yes. She's a hero for me. Because I think about all the conflict that she's going to have to endure. Little small town. Got pregnant in high school. But it was the Holy Ghost. No, really, it it was the Holy Spirit. And an angel, and on and on. You know, that didn't keep her from any of the scandal. It didn't keep her from any of the stares. It didn't keep her from any of that. Mary wasn't saved from any of those things. Pregnant by Holy Spirit. She didn't get to wear that badge. She got to live the scandal of it. And I'm so proud of her. And something in me deeply resonates. She's a hero for me. A little teenage girl is a hero for me. I want the Lord to tell me hard things. And I want to say, yes, Lord. I want to say, be it unto me according to your word. That's what I want to say. And all bets are off, friends. That mission is the most important thing in my life. That mission, the mission I'm talking to you about right now, is the driver in my life. My second, I only have two, Ananias. Ananias, not Ananias and Sapphira who didn't give what they said and fell dead. But Ananias, who was called to come see Paul. Kelsey's still here? Okay, come on. Kelsey gets double time for closing this sermon. 
Double time and a half. Just have a seat. I'll be done in a second. Ananias, we don't know anything about him. We don't know his background. Scripture never mentions a thing about him. This dude, this one hit, I call him the one hit wonder. He shows up out of nowhere. Just shows up out of nowhere. Having this conversation with God where God says, hey, I want you to go see this Saul guy. And he's like, Saul? Saul's the one that kills everybody. He said, yeah, yeah, but I want you to go see him. And if you read the scripture closely, the Lord tells Saul that Ananias is coming before Ananias agrees to come. I want to be that guy. I want to be that guy. That the Lord can say, you're going to be visited by Andy, bald man, glasses. He's going to come by. And before the Lord even asks me, he tells people where I'm going to be. Because he knows I will say yes. That's powerful for me. The second thing that's powerful for me is he knew all about Saul because he has a conversation with God about Saul. And yet, what is the first word? When Saul, who was a thug, he was an enforcer, he's been blind for three days. He's been fasting. He's sitting in a chair in a room in Damascus. Can't see, hasn't eaten, confused, just heard a voice that said the one he's fighting against just said, I am Jesus, and he's got all that going on. He is absolutely vulnerable, and a little kid with a chair could knock him over. He is absolutely susceptible. And he hears the footsteps coming down the hallway and the door open and the steps come in. And the first word he hears is, brother. <laughs> That's the guy I'm going to be. It's the guy I am. That's the guy I am. Brother. And you know what? You never hear from Ananias again. And frankly, that's fine too. But I want to be whatever it takes to be the person prepared for those moments. And I ask you, who's the greatest evangelist in the New Testament? Easily Saul became Paul. Or is it the guy that won? <laughs> Saul. And that's just, a, that's just a, a, a statement. What did Jesus do? I'm going to pray and then you come up, okay? Lord, I thank you for your gifts. I thank you for years of preparation. I thank you for your love for us and I thank you for our love for you. Every person in this room that loves you, so thankful for that. Thank you for the life change that you give us all, incrementally in big moments. Thank you for the tolerance that you give us, each one of us, your patience, your long-suffering. I pray that plays out in our lives, mine, all of us, not just as a recipient, but as a giver. And Lord, if this is the moment, and I, I'm trusting it is the moment, that you're calling us into a space to think hard, listen well, Love deeply and do business with this. Can't do it without you. This doesn't become a carnal act where we begin to start thinking things and writing stuff on papers and doing lists and checking boxes. This is a work of spirit. Holy Spirit, as we prayed earlier, come to us. 
Be with us, guide us, lead us. Be formed in us, Jesus Christ. Pray it in your name. So the charge for the last eight weeks has been to get outside of yourself and to give. And I, I think today, the message that I'm receiving, this honesty that that's not always easy. It's often not easy. And we've talked about, um, you know, sometimes it is easy to just invite people into the things that you're already doing that you're in spaces that Andy's not in. You're in spaces that I'm not in. I'm never going to meet the people that you work with. You're not going to meet the people that I work with. And so maybe it is easy for me to just walk alongside the people who are already there. But sometimes um, there's tension. And this whole message, I'm, I'm thinking of a friend of mine who it doesn't really make a lot of sense that we became friends a couple of years ago. Um, I don't know if you've ever had a friend who it felt like you were always giving and giving and giving, and that person needed you. I think initially in this relationship, I became friends with this person because I, I, I saw that they needed me, um, not necessarily because we had all the same interests or because it was so life-giving to me to hang out with this person. But when she'd call, I'd answer the phone. You know, I'd say yes, like Mary did. But who's to say, I wonder if for Mary it was a lot like me. When that phone rings and that person is on the other line, it takes a second. <sighs> Big, deep breath to work yourself up for this conversation. What are they going to be whining about now? <laughs> what do they need from me today? Um, and sometimes, I'm, I'm grateful, I think this is the first relationship I've seen this play out, but I'm grateful that this friend sought me out, because it wasn't always me seeking her out to give. Sometimes she called me and say, can I come do laundry at your house? Can we get a coffee? I really need to talk. And usually, for me, it was, I've got a busy work schedule, like we're in very different places in life, I have a husband, I've got stuff to do, but I would say yes, and I choose to spend time with this person, and I think that was the Holy Spirit. It wasn't me. <laughs> that was the Holy Spirit, and now that relationship is one of the most precious, life-giving relationships I have. This is one of my dearest friends, the way I have seen Jesus transform her, and I know that it wasn't me. I know that I didn't say any magic words. I think I just lived, I just did life with her. And the transformation that has come has been all Jesus. Just because I said yes, even on the days I didn't really want to. I just want to be honest with you that it's not always perfect and easy, but it is so worth it. And it might take longer than two years for you to see that relationship where you give and give and give turn into something precious for you. But Jesus can redeem people, and he can use you. 
And so I just want to ask you to get outside of yourself, even on the days that it's hard, even if you have to take a deep breath before you answer the phone. And I promise you that Jesus is not only going to change that person's life, but more than that, he's probably going to change your heart and work on your heart the way that he's worked on mine. So um, I will just pray for us now. God, thank you for this family. Thank you for this body. Thank you for the last eight weeks of showing us what it looks like to serve you, and more importantly today, what it might feel like to serve you and to serve others, to get outside of ourselves. Jesus, I thank you that we can come to you in all honesty and all vulnerability and, and tell you sometimes this is hard and sometimes I don't want to do it, but God, would you soften our hearts towards people? Would you help us to see people the way that you do? God, would you make us tenderhearted? Would you give us open eyes and open ears that when we see a need that we hear your voice, Jesus? I praise you for your love, Lord. Help me to love others. Help us all to love others the way that you do, God. We just want to live lives that are glorifying to you. And I pray this in your precious name. Amen. Have a great week. Hope to see you Wednesday night.